Welcome to the Conservation Today Show. We interview people about our environment in Oregon, and I am your host, Francis Etherington. Today I'm going to speak with members of various wild horse advocacy groups. We're going to be speaking with Linda and Renee and Tanea and Lorna and Nick about the wild horses and burros that exist on public lands across the United States including in eastern Oregon. I think most of these lands are managed by the Bureau of Land Management, BLM. Linda, first first let's talk with Linda. Uh, what's happening with these wild horses? Currently, the BLM is rounding up um, thousands of wild horses and burros and placing them in feedlot-type situations. So um, it's been in the news a lot. Um, and I'll just give a little backstory here. Um, in 1971, Congress declared that wild, free-roaming horses and burros were living symbols of the historic and pioneer spirit of the West and that they enriched the lives of the American people. The ensuing law stated that they would be protected from capture, branding, harassment, or death and would be considered in the area where presently found as an integral part of the natural system of public lands. The 1971 Free-Roaming Horses and Burros Act Okay, yes. According to this federal law, the wild horses and burros were to be managed on the amount of land necessary to sustain an existing herd or herds of wild free-roaming horses and burros devoted principally, but not necessarily exclusively, to their welfare in keeping with the multiple-use management concept for public lands. However, for the past five decades, the Bureau of Land Management and Forest Service have managed wild horses and burros almost entirely through roundups and permanent removals from their ranges, most of these animals being forced to live the rest of their lives warehoused in corrals or long-term holding properties laced with disease, death, and poor management. Well, that sounds like a big issue that they're using the 1971 Act just to round up the horses and force them to live in captivity. That doesn't sound good. Recent years have seen a large uptick in the frequency of roundups as well as the quota of wild horses targeted in each roundup. In 2021, nearly 14,000 horses were rounded up and permanently removed, and projections for 2022 were originally 22,000. 22,000 wild horses are planned to be rounded up this year, 2022. Why this recent push to get more and more wild horses and burros off of their federally designated lands? According to the BLM, who manages the majority of the wild horses on 27 million acres across 10 western states, they are protecting rangelands that are being degraded due to climate change, drought, and allegedly the overpopulation of wild herds, wild horse herds, excuse me. However, when the BLM justifies the removal of wild horses on public lands by touting their increasing populations, they won't voluntarily reveal the numbers of private livestock grazing on those ranges set aside primarily for the wild horses. Livestock is allowed on the wild horse set-aside areas? Yes. For example, if a BLM press release states that there are currently 42,000 wild horses in Nevada, which is the state with the most wild horses in the West, they won't reveal that there are 445,000 head of private livestock grazing on those same federal lands, 10 times the population of the horses. 42,000 horses 
and 445,000 head of livestock. Well, that's not fair. Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility, or PEER organization, states that the USGS and BLM have put on scientific blinders when it comes to public lands grazing, noting that cattle outnumber wild horses on BLM lands by a ratio of more than 30 to 1. PEER obtained BLM's rangeland health data via the Freedom of Information Act and charges that the BLM's deliberate obfuscation of livestock eco-impacts is a function of political pressure from the ranching industry. The BLM's own data, data show that wild horses are being scapegoated for range degradation being done by livestock grazing. The Wild Horse Education Organization gathers this data that reveals one-third of BLM grazing lands, and when we say grazing lands, that's livestock grazing lands, got failing grades for environmental health. One-third of livestock grazing permits are issued without the BLM completing an environmental assessment. Colorado Sandwash Basin, HMA, overlaps portions of 10 grazing allotments totaling 158,000 acres, where BLM assessments have overwhelmingly found livestock, not wild horses, to be at fault for deteriorated range conditions. You mentioned an HMA. That uh, stands for Herd Management Area, which is the term that the BLM uses for an area that wild horses are allowed to roam. So who decides when there are too many horses in an HMA, which is a horse management area? How many cattle can be on that same range and who should be removed first? When the Wild Free Roaming Horses and Burrows Act was passed in 1971, there were 339 herd areas on 53.8 million acres of federal land. Today, there are approximately 270 herd management areas across 31.6 million acres. Herd areas are places wild horses once roamed freely. HMAs are those areas that are now managed supposedly primarily for wild horses and burrows. To establish the low and high appropriate management levels, or AMLs, for wild horses, the BLM is required to provide accurate counts of the horses as well as base their population quotas on data and research studies provided by external science-based agencies and organizations. A site-specific environmental analysis, or EA, and decision process pursuant to NEPA with public involvement is required to establish or adjust AML. A minimum of three to five years of monitoring data is preferred before making any adjustment to AML. Okay, the AML is the approximate management level, uh, determining how many wild horses can be in an HMA, a horse management area. And the BLM does an environmental assessment to make this determination, okay? To get around these regulations, the BLM can declare an emergency situation. Examples in include disease or fire, insect infestation, or other events of a catastrophic and unanticipated nature that affect forage and water availability for wild horses or burrows. The key is that emergencies occur suddenly and require immediate action. In the Sandwash Basin HMA in Colorado, the planned roundup in 2021 was at the last minute declared an emergency. Even though the drought conditions had been going on for years, they weren't sudden or catastrophic, 
The horses were still in good condition, and the area had received several days of good rains that had greened up the vegetation and filled watering holes in springs. Approximately 615 horses were removed due to the drought emergency, yet days later, the same range was flooded with thousands of sheep. Wow. So people ask, does livestock grazing on public land supplement the government's expenditures for managing the wild horses and burrows? Unknowing citizens might assume so, but the answer is a resounding no. U.S. taxpayers greatly subsidize what corporate livestock entities pay to graze at $1.35 per cow-calf pair or animal unit month, AUM. Compare that to $22 per AUM, which is what ranchers would pay to graze their livestock on private lands. $1.30 on public lands? What cost $22 on private lands? Why those livestock rangers are getting a good deal on our public lands. When the government allows private livestock herds to push wild horses off their designated lands, U.S. taxpayers pay millions to round up the horses and warehouse them for the rest of their lives in overcrowded, understaffed feedlots. In one such facility in April 2022, 150 horses lost their lives due to disease that could have been prevented by required vaccinations that were not administered. These horses were healthy when rounded up last September. So the same Americans who technically own our wild horses and wish them to remain healthy and free on public lands end up paying twice once to subsidize the cattle that are pushing them off the ranges, and again to remove them from the land that is by law designated to be protected principally for them. If the HMAs are devoted principally for the wild horses, why aren't cattle numbers being reduced before wild horse populations in emergency situations? Polls have shown at least 80% of Americans want America's wild horses to be managed on our federal ranges. One of the main problems with the BLM managing wild horses is the BLM is an agency that has been and always will be partial to livestock grazing. The BLM was created in 1946 from the merges of the General Land Office and the U.S. Grazing Service. The U.S. Grazing Service was established in 1934 to manage livestock on public lands, and for decades they had hired contractors to kill or remove wild horses from the range. If wild horses and burrows are federally protected, why are inhumane helicopter roundups still allowed to continue? Uh, what, what federal law protects the horses and burros? The 1971 Act? Yes, the 1971 Wild and Free Roaming Horses and Burros Act. And I was going to talk about that more a little bit later. Okay, great, thanks. So if wild horses and burros are federally protected, why are inhumane helicopter roundups allowed, still allowed to continue? There was a law previous to the 1971 law called the Hunting Wild Horses and Burrows on Public Lands Law, also known as the Wild Horse Annie Act, which was passed in 1959 and prohibited the use, of, the use of aircraft to hunt and remove wild horses, as well as the poisoning of water holes. This law was passed due to the Herculean efforts of a Reno woman named Delma Johnson, a.k.a. Wild Horse Annie, who saw firsthand the devastating cruelty that had been used for decades by Mustangers and ranchers to either kill the animals, wild horses, or transport them in horrific ways to pet food slaughterhouses. Johnston launched her advocacy work and didn't stop until she had thousands of signatures from school children and citizens from all over the world to finally stop the inhumane treatment of these animals that had been going on unrestricted for decades. 
Wild horse numbers had been in steep decline, and if the status quo of hunting mustangs as a nuisance or a quick cash crop had continued, wild horses of the American West would soon be nothing more than a campfire story. Another, after another decade of hard work by Velma Johnston and concerned citizens, the full Wild Free Roaming Horses and Burrows Act was passed in 1971. This law established parameters for the protection of wild horses moving forward. Ironically, a 1976 amendment to this law began allowing helicopters and motorized vehicles back into the mix. Therefore, helicopter roundups have been the primary way the BLM has managed wild horse herd populations for decades. What makes these roundups inhumane? The 1976 amendment approved humane helicopter roundups, but there really is no such thing. By its very nature, using helicopters to terrify innocent creatures into running full out for miles over rough and unstable terrain is not humane. Common results of helicopter roundups include horses, including tiny foals, shot after breaking legs from being run too fast and too far over rocky or rough terrain. Deaths from broken necks from being run too fast into the chute. Injuries, usually resulting in death, from trying to jump out of the temporary holding facilities. Exhausted foals separated from their mothers and left behind, most not being weaned or able to live on their own if their mothers were captured. Injuries and deaths from being rushed during transport to different facilities and adoption events. And hundreds of deaths from disease resulting from overcrowded holding facilities and a lack of required vaccinations. With more advocates and regular citizens speaking out every year, the BLM created CAWP, or Comprehensive Animal Welfare Program, for Roundup. This is, a, this is supposed to provide standards to prevent some of the horrific events that I just listed. However, this set of, comp, this set of comprehensive standards are internal, managed entirely by BLM staff. Violations to these standards have been noted by observers in every recent roundup, yet there's no accountability by the BLM, no outside agencies shutting down the operations until evaluations and improvements can be made. These guidelines are apparently not perceived to be regulations, and therefore any violations seem to hold no weight. Add to this the fact that advocates who wish to witness these roundups to observe the safety and health of our American wild horses have been pushed further and further away from the trap site sometimes as much as three miles away or over a ridge where it is simply impossible to see the horses through the netting that is put up. Why are these regulations not followed? Why can't concerned citizens view our wild horses to ensure they're rounded up in a humane way? What do these BLM contractors have to hide? Why can't we require cameras on the helicopters and let the video be reviewed and if infractions are made, they fire the helicopter contractor? Most of these contractors have been employed by the BLM for years, if not decades. Since 2011, these contractors have made 36.8 million from these catastrophic events. 36 million in about 10 years? Wow, that's lucrative. Tell us what can be done to stop these inhumane roundups. Representative Dina Titus from Nevada has introduced H.R. 6635, the Wild Horse and Burrow Protection Act, that again calls for the prohibition of helicopters and aircraft in managing wild horses, encouraging instead approved humane management techniques that leave the horses on the range. Americans should call and email the representatives and senators and ask them to support and pass this current bill. Thank you, Linda. <clears throat> that was fascinating.
I will put a link to HR 6635 in the podcast description so folks can go there and take a look at that. And, and let me ask you uh, a couple quick questions. Tell us again uh, the HMA and the AML. Define those acronyms again. HMA is a herd management area, and those are the designated areas that are managed by the BLM. Yes. And the AML is the appropriate management level, and that is a number established by the BLM supposedly with external input of the levels that they feel the range can support. And that number is a is two numbers. It's the lower level and the higher level. So, um, you know, the, the the populations can fall somewhere in between. But in the recent years, they seem to be rounding up horses and taking them down to the low levels, which mm-hmm. most horse advocates and other scientific entities agree is way too low of a – it's not a sustainable level of for these wild horses. BLM did an EIS, an environmental impact statement, on the management of these wild horses, correct? They are required to do those, yes. And is that on the HMA or the AML? They are required to do those um, before they set an AML number. Okay. So for every HMA, like every state has, you know, like Nevada has a lot of wild horses, and so there's um, there's many HMAs in that state. So each time the BLM wants to adjust the appropriate management levels in an HMA, they are required to do an environmental assessment. Whether those are getting done is, is very controversial. I it's like they can get around that by saying they need an emergency roundup, then they don't have to do those assessments. Okay, well, thank you, Linda. Next, we're going to speak with Renee. You're concerned about wild horses and burrows. What's up? Well, I want to talk to you about the holding facilities. And just for anybody that doesn't know that, holding pens are where hundreds and thousands of horses are basically stored until they are offered for adoption or moved elsewhere. Some are stored there for years. What diseases do the wild horses and burros generally suffer in holding facilities that we know of? Last October, holding crowds in Susanville, California, had pigeon fever. This disease is a bacterial infection that causes large abscesses on horses' necks, swelling to the degree it has the appearance of a pigeon's chest. It's also the equivalent of equine distemper. As of May the 12th this year, the BLM reported that 142 horses had died at Canyon City Holding Facility. PCR tests found that the viruses, the in the facility were the reason the equine virus were subtype H3N8 and two herpes viruses, EHV1 with EHV4. The viruses cause respiratory problems. However, the prognosis is good for horses not affected with the neurologic form and varies for those with neurologic signs. Also on May the 12th, the Wheatland Holding Facility reported 17 horses died from strangles, which is caused by streptococcus. The symptoms are lethargy, lack of interest, a thick white yellow nasal discharge swelling under the jaw and or the throat latch from infected lymph nodes. And I believe that most all of these 
have lead to respiratory problems. Now, the history of the diseases at the holding facility, I was unable to find any other contagious disease breaks. There are many BLM holding facilities that it is hard to imagine that this has not happened many times before. The idea that only three facilities in history have had a serious problem seems pretty impossible to me. What caused these horses to get these diseases? These viruses were contracted by coming into contact with contaminated surfaces. None of the wild mustangs were sick when they were rounded up, nor soon thereafter. The BLM and those they hire are totally responsible for these outbreaks. These diseases are spread through contact with contaminated clothing, shoes, boots, equipment, brushes, pack, water, feed buckets, water troughs, and horse-to-horse. For the Canyon City and the Wheatland facilities, this is how those types of viruses spread. For the Susanville holding facility, pigeon fever is a bacteria that lives in the ground, feces, hay, and shavings for long periods. Fly bites can even make these wounds irritated in areas on the skin, and then the bacteria infects it. I have concern looking at the number of respiratory problems. I've come to question if there's been any discussion by the vet and or testing for cryptococcus, which is fungus. Is it there on the holding facilities grounds? Cryptococcus has numerous hosts and horses are one. It is the most common fungus and it can go away on its own or it can remain in the lungs only or spread throughout the body. It can cause breathing problems, which is a respiratory disease. Since the vet at Canyon City was not a licensed veterinarian, I'm not sure that I trust them. It is to note that post-mortem reports only listed viruses, yet there were only a few post-mortems done at the 145 horses that were there were possibly more. Cryptococcus is a fungus in the soil. I have to wonder here if some of these horses could easily have caught this in the pens or caught it in the uh, soil from the horses were inhaling with the helicopters on top of their heads. When they fly right over, the soil is literally in the air and they inhale everything including dirt for miles. If that dirt has cryptococcus, cough, headache, nausea, confusion, blurred or double vision, fatigue, fever, unusual sweating at night, and swollen glands, the common denominator here, again, is respiratory problems. The process these wild equines go through begins with helicopters, and for many it ends in a slaughterhouse in Mexico, Canada, or Asia. However, these horses are clueless of what is happening to them, and they are terrified. Stress levels are high, and with all this adrenaline spent, they are exhausted. Add to this with them crammed in together, causing fights, horses trying to jump out, Horses being pushed and knocked to the ground and getting stoned on, as well as the foals easily being stomped to death. 
mares that are miscarrying, their foals are going into labor, trying to birth them among this horrible, horrible, stressful environment. One other thing that could be a great factor here, and I've not seen it mentioned, is that it's a lack of sleep. Horses nap standing. Horses sleep and get healing REM sleep only while lying down. In many pens, they cannot lie down due to the sheer numbers of horses. That means they do not sleep. A huge stress factor comes from being terrified from the Roundup, running them. The BLM has no problem with running equals for miles in recently burrows with jennies and foals and some pregnant were rounded up and chased for miles in 90-degree heat. The wild horses and burrows have helicopters literally on top of them, so close that some have been knocked down, causing broken legs and necks, potentially causing permanent hearing loss, and some enforcing them to inhale so much dirt and it being in their eyes, mouth, ears, and lungs. Another horrible stressor for them may be the worst. It's separating them from their family and herd mates. These long terms of months to years and these pens cause tremendous stress. Ultimately, add all these things together, including change in food, water, old traumas, and you have an animal with a weakened immune system. According to protocol, Within a short time of their arrival, a veterinarian gives the horses a health inspection. Animals with any injuries or diseases are treated immediately. All animals are prepared for adoption in the shoot area located under the barn where they are checked for age, vaccinated for disease, wormed, and freeze marks. Protocols are one thing. Actually doing it is quite another. A huge concern of mine is their hay. These horses are pretty much only fed hay. What kind of hay? What does the BLM buy from? I have learned that cow hay is different from horse hay, or it probably should be. Horse hair is extremely, horse hay is extremely clean with no dust or mold. Hay that contains moderate levels of protein and energy. Good quality hay is green in color with little fading and has a sweet, fresh odor. Quality hay has been stored and kept dry. Poor quality hay can be damp and moldy with musty or fermented smell. Some horses just won't eat bad hay, but if they have no alternative for it, then they have to eat it or starve. Mold on hay can cause digestive diseases and mold spores inhale causes respiratory disease. Moldy hay can cause colic, heaves, and other chronic respiratory diseases. Eating moldy hay doesn't always, but it can kill a horse. So the question is, who decides who or what to buy hay from, and who decides if it is quality hay? The answer is the BLM does. The BLM and the Roundup workers and the ranchers that lease the federal lands appear to be intertwined into that group. And they are the ones that decide all of these things. These ranchers grow their own hay. They are bailing hay for cattle. Cow hay can be a lower quality of hay and is ideal for most beef cattle, which they own. When cutting and bailing hay, invariably somebody gets bad hay. Possibly it wasn't quite dried enough and molded or there was little animals chopped up and that can get in the hay bales. 
my fear is that the good old boys are selling bad hay for top prices, and that hay is given to the wild horses and burros. The average horse will drink about 5 to 10 gallons of fresh water per day, which leads me to my next concern, and that is the quality of water. If these horses are in pens, then there has to be water containers or troughs that hold water trucked in. Bad water has a list of side effects as well. So who decides where the water comes from, and is it any good? If the water is bad, normally a horse may not drink it. But again, if they have no other option, then they have to. And, and on hot summer days, it's even worse. Another area of concern is salt and nutrition as far as minerals. Since we know that these horses stand in pens for months or even years or pastured for life on ranchers, does the BLM supply them what they need? Who oversees this? Why do these things happen with the BLM and the questions go on and on? Who decides everything? The BLM. Who investigates these things? The BLM. So basically, BLM investigates themselves. In conclusion, I find that there are no outside inspections or consults regarding the wild ones. The best that I can describe it is that our government has hired the fox to watch over the hen house. The answer to everything that I ask the question as to who, the answer is the BLM and or the USDA. However, pretty much where the wild horses and burros go, there is the BLM and the BLM and the BLM. They decide, they hire, they make the rules, and they are busy covering everything up. Yet, at the head of all of it, I believe that the ranchers own them. Thanks, Renee. Wow. That was fascinating, especially when the ranchers get to graze so many more cattle than wild horses on those horse management areas. Yes, exactly. Now, the description of the Roundup is pretty horrific. I don't know much about horses, and so they have their foals at a certain time of year. Is that is that right? I speak a little bit to that. This is Lorna. Um, Foaling season is in the spring, early summer, and in Oregon anyway, the BLM is supposed to have a moratorium on roundups to protect the foals, but sometimes they override requirements when they determine an emergency. It is extremely dangerous for horses to be rounded up with their foals at their sides. The babies can't keep up. Oh. And yes, there is a, a generally accepted time frame that mm -hmm. the BLM is not supposed to round up to avoid um, causing that kind of pain. Right now, we are going to take a short break. We have been talking with Linda and Renee about the treatment of wild horses on public lands. When we come back, we'll speak with Tanea and Lorna and Nick. We are back talking about the fate of wild horses on BLM lands. First, Tanea. Hi, Tanea. So you're going to be speaking to us on about what? Well, I was going to talk about um, how we define wild horses. Some people like to call them feral, 
an invasive species, and other people argue that they are wild and native. And this is like a core issue that comes up along, among debates between people to justify their removal or justify keeping them free. Mm -hmm. So people who support the Roundup believe the horses are feral and invasive and cause damage to the land. I have to say that's what I've always heard. All of these are not native animals, they're invasive, so, and they damage the land. That's yeah. the excuse I've always heard, yeah. It's very prevalent. It's everywhere, yeah. Well, I would like to say people who put out this information are misinformed. For <laughs> one, feral is a loaded word and is used to demonize certain animals like the horses. Even if an animal can be referred to as feral, it does not negate it from being a native and beneficial species. Feral does not automatically mean invasive, but this is the key weapon deployed by those who want the horses gone and is at the core of 99% of the debates about the horses. So the history around calling wild horses feral stems from an older, outdated, yet still very prevalent narrative that the horses went extinct in North America during the Ice Age. And the horses that exist today are from Europe, brought here by settlers. Uh, yes, well, some of their horses did escape or got turned loose and they formed herds in the wild, yet that's not the whole picture. Due to new emerging evidence, like newly discovered fossils and genetic lineage studies of the horses, the science community has been forced to rewrite the history books, so to speak. The evidence points to the fact that the original horses in North America never went extinct and can therefore be defined as wild and native. And even the horses that came from the settlers, genetic studies have been done on them and their form, and they have been found to be identical to the native North, North American horses. Hmm. And um, Native Americans, they're speaking out, they say, their ancestors have lived with horses long before the settlers arrived and that this has been ignored, not believed, and erased out of history we are taught in typical colonial fashion. I want to describe in more detail the terms being used to categorize the horses, like native, wild, feral, etc. So in plant and animal species, you have domesticated and or feral species, and wild as their opposite. Then you have native versus non-native and invasive versus beneficial. It's actually pretty easy to confuse the terms and misuse them. I'll admit I've correctly used, I've incorrectly used native as an opposite to feral until I really started looking into what each of these terms mean. You can also easily weaponize these terms in order to push an agenda the BLM and anti-horse people know that when people hear the words feral or invasive, there's a negative connotation to it, like something needs to be fixed or action taken, and it's very effective. The average person off the street, and for that matter, a lot of politicians that don't know much about the wild horses, are not going to question the so-called authorities on the subject. And separately, you have the terms native, non-native, invasive and beneficial. So native is pretty easy. It refers to origination, 
i.e. where someone was born, and or the evolution and adaptation of a species to a specific region. Non-native, something that has been brought into the environment it did not originate from. And the term invasive can apply to both native and non-native species. A native species can become invasive if it begins to take over, dominate, and create imbalance. And a non-native species can find a niche in an ecosystem where they provide benefits. For me personally, from an environmental mindset, the only terms that really matter are invasive versus non-invasive. Is something damaging an ecosystem or creating balance? Feral, wild, untamed, tamed, these are all human constructs placed onto the natural world where nothing is constant. Animals migrate, ecosystems change over time, the borders and maps we create are artificial, yet we expect nature to abide by these borders and our own agendas. So are horses invasive in the areas they are found? No, they bring many benefits to keeping an ecosystem balanced. Cattle and sheep, on the other hand, are both non-native and invasive, and even the BLM's own internal research and documents admit that it is the cattle, not the horses, that are destroying public lands. And when it comes down to it, the technical definition of wild or feral becomes irrelevant due to the 1971 Free Roaming Act. Here, Congress officially classified any unbranded and unclaimed horse or burrow roaming on public land as a wild horse and under U.S. law are to be protected and managed to preserve the species. So the BLM is actually going against Congress by calling the horses feral and invasive and it's an intentional disinformation campaign to get the public's approval of their actions. There have been court cases fought and won by horse advocates when they can prove that the horses are wildlife and native, yet the BLM persists in using this ter these terms. It's an uphill battle to inject this new information we're getting from science into the argument. Well, that's fascinating. I never knew that. So these, um, <clears throat> the horses and burros are much more native than cows. Yes, All right. Um, and who would like to speak next? I would be happy to. Lorna, yes. yes. Go ahead, Lorna. Okay, this, hi. Um, what I'm going to talk about really kind of um, underlines what Tanea just said. So I'd like to talk about the impact that wild horses and burros have on the environment and why they are central to the rewilding concept in North America. So I want to start by explaining what the term rewilding means. Uh, rewilding is an internationally recognized term that refers to a specific approach to halting the progression of climate change by returning as much of the landscape to its natural state as possible. It involves restoring both native plants and animals to areas that they once inhabited in their natural state. To accomplish this, natural waterways and wetlands must also be restored to support both plant and animal growth. Um, rewilding is not an instant cure, 
but it's based on sound international and scientific research, which has been applied in a variety of European countries. Here in Oregon, there's a group called Oregon Wild that has studied the impact of returning beavers to certain waterways in Oregon and documented the amazing rewilding impact of this species on the growth of native plants and the return of native wildlife to the area by influencing water flow um, to return the land to its natural state. Um, a depleted cattle ranch was restored to a flourishing landscape in just a few years by the introduction of both beavers and rescued wild horses. Um, this created a self-perpetuating natural landscape, which documents the potential for creation of the rewild landscapes and species. This was, um, I'm referring to Ingler Canyon Ranch, which is in Colorado. Um, Colorado is kind of head and shoulders above some of the states, but we do have sanctuaries here in Oregon who are trying to practice the rewilding concept. Um, in order for rewilding to have its positive impact on the environment, all of the necessary pieces of the original flora and fauna must be in place. The parts must exist in an equitable balance for natural functioning. In the case of wild horses and burrows, they're considered to be a native keystone species throughout many areas of North America. Keystone species is, it is one whose presence is necessary in that particular area in order for the ecosystem to function well and support positive environmental recovery. Wild horses and burrows are actually prey animals whose presence must also be accompanied by the presence of their natural predators. In native North American wilderness, cougars, bears, and wolves are natural predators. Um, wild equines thrive in areas where they function in a symbiotic relationship. This is another important term. Um, a symbiotic relationship with the natural flora and fauna of the region. Symbiotic relationships exist when the various pieces in the ecosystem rely on each other for survival. Many native plants and grasses benefit and flourish from the unique grazing habits of wild horses and burrows. Horses have both top and bottom teeth, which allow them to graze by eating only the tops of plants rather than pulling the roots from the ground, leaving the earth and the roots intact. This prevents erosion of the earth. Their single stomach digestive systems are uniquely designed to return much of the useful parts of the ingested plants to the earth. Seeds pass through their digestive systems intact to be deposited and spread as they graze and migrate to different areas. Their droppings consist of a rich, fibrous, seed-laden fertilizer that both replants and spreads the native plants and grasses across their habitat. Many animals and plants benefit from the wild equine's ability to both reseed and fertilize the land they inhabit. Their unique digestive system also 
sequesters large amounts of carbon back into the earth rather than releasing methane gas into the air like the digestive systems of the non-native cattle that now graze on most of the land set aside for wild horses and burros. So, are wild horses and burros actually good for the environment? Can they mitigate global warming? Yes. They are uniquely suited to preserving the environment in many ways. Even the wide shape of their hooves reduces the detrimental impact of treading on fragile plant systems. Horses travel in small family bands that combine to make up a larger herd. Family bands take turns at water sources, not lingering long enough to disturb the fragile plants on the riverbanks and shores. Their grazing habits allow them to consume large quantities of forage that would otherwise turn dry and combustible under the current heat threat of global warming. By leaving the plant roots intact and reseeding the land, they have a positive impact on the environment. By reducing the amount of combustible forage on the ground, they reduce the risk of catastrophic wildfire that also contributes to greenhouse gases and global warming. Loss of natural forests is another contributor to global warming. Wild horses and burrows also have the ability to locate water just under the surface of the ground and have been known to dig up these sites, providing water access to themselves and other native species. They also break through ice in the winter with their strong hose, helping other species access water during winter months that they would not be able to access alone. Their large bodies also help forage trails for other grazing animals that lead to water. So I could just talk a minute about why domestic ruminants like cattle and sheep harm the ecosystem. Um, here's a quote from another one of our local organ experts, Gail Hunt, who has, uh, she is the, uh, I guess, savior of the Ochico herd in eastern Oregon. She says, without natural vegetation cover and evolved biodiversity, regional microclimates can develop, adding to global effects. The cumulative resulting effect may be that, for example, prolonged drought ripens fuel for inevitable wildfire while radical climate change winds drive erratic fire behavior, destroying life, property, and resources, and releasing massive amounts of carbon and heat into the atmosphere. Fire is violent and dramatic, but the placid herd of foraging Angus on the sagebrush wastelands of the West is equally destructive. Cattle and sheep are not native to North America. I'm finished with the quote, sorry. <laughs> um, they're not native. Their grazing style does not protect the uh, systems of native grass or preserve the earth in which they grow. Their land can result in erosion and nutrient loss. Their digestive systems do not preserve the seeds of the native plants for redistribution on the land as they migrate. Their hoof design is narrow, causing deep ruts 
and more crushed plant systems. They emit methane gas into the atmosphere, which contributes to global warming at a rate similar to auto emissions worldwide. So cattle and auto emissions worldwide are almost equivalent in the methane gas that, well, methane for cattle, but um, this reference is from the LA Times, 2021. Um, sorts and other science-based documentation of the impact of grazing by large numbers of domestic cattle indicates that cattle also impact the environment by the reduction of natural habitats available to support the ecosystem due to both grazing needs and agricultural production of feed for their use. A recent podcast by Western Watersheds Initiative, Guests by a Million Hooves, described an evidence-based study of current grazing practices in the Western U.S. The extinction and removal of all native species including predators and wild equines, has devastated the ecosystem in many areas. Extensive overgrazing by cattle and sheep strips the land of native grasses, leaving the bare earth susceptible to the conditions in which the Dust Bowl of the 1930s contributed to massive dead zones and famine in this country. So... Is there a solution involving our wild equines that will help mitigate climate change? Yes, the solution is clear. Wild horses and burrows, if returned to their natural habitat in viable family herds, can mitigate global warming by preserving and restoring native plants, interacting with other native species symbiotically. They would reduce wildfire risk and reduce greenhouse gases. This would require that non-native species be removed from the areas to be rewilded. Rewilding our equines along with other keystone species is a step towards saving the planet for future generations. Well, Lorna, so far that has just been fascinating. I, I had no idea that the horse's digestive system was different and they don't We've all heard about cattle and methane being so bad for the climate, so that's very, very interesting about how the native wildlife is so much better for us climate-wise. Go ahead and tell us um, more. Research involving successful rewilding of equine species has been successfully conducted in European countries. So they're way ahead of us. They're already doing this in several countries, and uh, the best reference I found for that was Manga Bay. Um, they talk a lot about rewilding, and they have several studies that document rewilding equines into the um, environment. It's also, like I said, Ingler Canyon, but it takes years for a documented study to become scientific knowledge. So it's happening now, but it's um, taking some time for recognition. Um, efforts to conduct successful scientific research are being documented here in this country, application of this concept will require that the BLM recognize and participate in this process rather than continuing their current process that prioritize domestic cattle and sheep on the natural habitat of our native equines. When we think of rewilding our captive wild equines, it brings up a picture of returning them 
from the holding pens back into their HMAs. However, under current Galen policy, this will not be allowed to happen, at least immediately, without an executive order or intervention from the DOI, Department of Interior Leadership. So then, what other plans are available to safely remove wild horses and burrow from holding facilities? So there is a plan out there. Is a plan that basically circumvents the BLM. It, it just hopes to take the horses out of the holding facilities, place them in different tracts of land, and protect them from the things that were being described, the death and the uh, containment that breaks their spirit that was described earlier. It's called the Wild Horse Fire Brigade, and the author of that plan is William E. Simpson, too. It's a plan that um, circumvents the BLM policies and attempts to release the wild equines and the holding pens into wilderness areas as work animals to be employed in the prevention of wildfires when released into forested areas with high levels of undergrowth, which is known to make wildfires burn hotter and spread more quickly, um, as directed by the founder, Mr. Simpson. He states that the numbers of large herbivores in these areas have been declining rapidly, but much of the ecosystem is intact and would be complemented by the reintroduction of wild equines. Again, I quote, each wild horse deployed into these selected wilderness areas will symbiotically consume about 5.5 tons of grass and brush annually as they can currently reseed the landscape keeping a delicate ecological balance in place. The resulting wildfire fuels reduction via wild horses is virtually cost-free for the taxpayer and simultaneously solves the livestock wild horse conflict. Lorna, this plan is very fascinating. I think we should have a separate interview just on this management plan. I think that would be a great idea. It sounds very hopeful. It's not without its hurdles. There are, you know, like I started to say, um, they wouldn't be protected under the BLM rules anymore. But as he points out, their protections under the direction of the BLM are seriously restricted. Right. By the fact that the BLM frequently violates their own guidelines and policies where the wild horses and burrows are concerned. So I, I have a couple of items that I documented for horses in Oregon. So um, where the BLM has set requirements for themselves and then clearly and publicly violated them. Sure. There's a regulation called COP, C-A-W-P, our Comprehensive Animal Welfare Policy. Um, and this policy was violated by the BLM in numerous instances. This was documented by AWHC and WHE from All Advocates for Wild Equines, to which I belong. Three of these took place in Oregon during the Barren Valley Complex Roundup. And they are as follows. September 14th, the BLM dragged a horse by a rope uh, into a trailer, which is a 
strict violation of their policy. There's also another one where they are not allowed to use loud, disruptive, and frightening noises. So in September 21, in the Barren Valley Gather, helicopter pursued a band of wild horses for approximately 40 minutes using a loud, blaring horn sound that was nonstop. Handling aids, again, with the Barren Valley Roundup, they're not allowed to use uh, electric child rods unless it's uh, an extreme situation, but they use the cattle rods just to speed up the loading for their own convenience. So they they set rules and they break them publicly. One other instance, which was documented by Mary Beth Devlin um, and the Warm Springs herd in Oregon, there were many, many things that were uh, done to this herd. They were used in uh, experimental medical uh, conditions where the mares were um, given oorectomies without um, anesthetic. And um, it was this one was well documented, and numerous atrocities were documented there. So, and this is Oregon. So, and wow. it's only really two of the herds. So that's kind wow. of what I have to say about the environmental impact. And if we have time after Nick's done talking, I can come back and talk about the slaughter pipeline. Yes, and thank you, Lorna. That was very fascinating. We are having a part two to this podcast, and we will include the slaughter pipeline in there. This ends part one of the wild horses on our public lands information. Now, don't forget to check out the podcast description for the bios of our panelists, Linda, Lorna, Renee, Tanea, and Nick. In the podcast description, you will also find links to more information that they talked about here. This is Conservation Today, and I'm your host, Francis Etherington. Part two of this discussion is available now.